Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discuss gang graffiti, the crisis in Puerto Rico, and global seed diversity. All this plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet? only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for August 16, 2019. John Daly spoke with Damon Corrado, a.k.a. Mr. C., the author of Compliments of Chicago Hoods, a new look at the art and culture of Chicago's infamous street gangs. Corrado discussed the hand-style tagging, the quaint sweaters gangs used to wear, and the business cards they carried. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time. Give us a little history, guys, about how the phenomenon that we know as the Chicago gang came to be. Uh, well, I would say that the uh, original Chicago gangs uh, began with the social athletic clubs of the early 20th century and the uh, European immigrants, uh, Irish, Italian, Poles, um, and uh, these were uh, kind of just what the name suggests, uh, fraternal organizations that partook in sporting events. And uh, But there was an, also an underbelly to that where these uh, some of these gangs, well, which they really were, like uh, Mayor Daly's Hamburg Club, uh, were involved in uh, the uh, Chicago machine and intim- voter intimidation and stuff like that. So uh, Richard Daly was a member of a social athletic co- club called the Hamburg Club, uh, for example. There was the Reagan's, Reagan, Reagan's Colts, um, and uh, these were uh, organizations that were involved in the uh, Chicago race riot of 1919. Um, so the first gangs in Chicago were uh, of European descent, um, and uh, that's not to say that all of them were uh, engaged in criminal activity. Some of them did uh, host dances and so forth. Uh, some of those uh, documents are contained in our book, so you kind of see both sides of that. Now, but why, why did these organizations fo- form in the first place? Well, uh, Chicago was such an industrial hub at the time. Uh, you had the steel mills, you had the slaughterhouses, and so you had a lot of people coming over here uh, in search of opportunity and a better way of life. And uh, uh, they were uh, they would encounter uh, various forms of discrimination and, and certain living conditions that led to uh, banding together in these organizations to sort of uh, just defend themselves, I would say. Uh, and over time, that sort of led to, um, unfortunately, uh, lots of violence and, and infighting and preying on their own people uh, with the mafia, and, and is a great example. So, though that is the roots of gangs in Chicago. Chicago has uh, always been somewhat of a segregated city, uh, even as far back as that, and a community, a community that would uh, try to uh, uh, build themselves as. Um, you know, to reflect their homeland. Uh, so, yeah, they would they would set up. Uh, this this would be like maybe uh, a Polish neighborhood, and then across the boulevard would be uh, maybe an Irish neighborhood, and you know, cliques would form. And you know, kids. Uh, a lot of kids were very. Uh, uh, what would you call it? Maybe uh, competitive in a, in a sense. But, uh, yeah, those are those guys from over there, and we're, we, we're these guys over here. And if you come over and you try to talk to our girlfriend or something, that's uh, no-no. Yeah, I mean, people have described Chicago as this incredibly segregated city, and not only like along, along racial lines, but along ethnic lines. You know, So we have the Greeks over here, we have the, the Irish over here, and the Germans. And Do you think that that's something unique to Chicago? Not at all. No. Uh, New York has had that uh, <clears throat> other metropolis you know like other big cities um people are just like that 
So if it wasn't if it wasn't drawn by ethnic lines, if it wasn't drawn by uh, race, so to speak, or whatever, I mean, people might be looking at people of you know different you know I don't know. It just I think people are just that way by nature, unfortunately. I also think that a lot of these cultures had already had the tradition of forming clubs, uh, like the Bohemians and the Czechs and the Pilsen area. That was there were so many different. Uh, fraternal groups and, and uh, brotherhoods and, and, and different clubs of very of different kinds in that area, and so I, th- I think that had something to do with it also. That they brought that culture over from Europe. Well, was that culture then borrowed by I guess what we think of and and many of the the groups that you talk about in your book, which are prom- predominantly uh, black, Puerto Rican, Latino, um, and make up the the majority of I guess what we think of as today's Chicago gang makeup was that borrowed by those groups or is that also something that existed in in their uh, cultures before they rose so to speak in in Chicago? I do think that for example a lot of the Puerto Rican um, gangs uh, that sprung up uh, later on um, did did actually transplant some of the of of their organizations from their homeland. I think that, that there was some of that going on. Uh, I think that these, these, these gangs or, or clubs, as they were called, sprung up for varying reasons. So I think you had the, the um, initial uh, sort of uh, bedrock of these European uh, gangs, social athletic clubs, whatever, whatever you want to call them. Uh, you had ver- different waves of um, African Americans moving up from the South, um, and oftentimes they would be subjected to the same sort of discrimination that they experienced down there. And a lot of it was uh, essentially forming these kind of defense leagues against that. Uh, the same thing with uh, the uh, Mexican community. Uh, over time, the Mexican community, uh, as uh, those people became more Americanized, they would in turn um, harass the newer Mexican immigrants. So it's almost like this vicious cycle that was going on. Visually, your book is is fascinating. One of the things that I uh, I saw was the you know the compliment cards, mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting because I've actually seen some of these. I didn't really know what they were, and now like you can you can kind of source it. And you 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 understand like um, what some of the stuff is. How did you start uh, collecting the uh, source material? Well, as as a kid. Uh I grew up in the western suburbs, and uh, a lot of families were moving out of the city uh, from the 60s, 50s and 60s, and um, in the early 70s is when I became aware of this, and uh, my new neighbors would be moving in, and they would be talking about uh, the gang from their old neighborhood, and they'd be saying, uh, yeah, when I grow up, I'm going to be this, or I'm going to be that, whatever gang it may be. And one family moved in around 1980, and they had moved out of their neighborhood because uh, because of the escalating violence. So people were being killed uh, in ridiculous numbers, and it was only a matter of time for them, too. Uh, so they moved in, and their mother made them throw away all their memorabilia, all their gang sweaters, all their, you know, colored, uh, colored khakis and whatever, and uh, wanted them to start anew while they handed me a stack of those compliment cards and as I started getting older I started to uh, meet other other clubs from around my area you know border the the neighboring towns and they also had those things made so the compliment cards were in a were probably at the peak of their trend at, around that period 
Um, so that's that's how that started. How did this uh, How did this book come together? How did you guys get together and and uh... Uh, basically, I've always been fascinated by street gangs. I grew up on the north side uh, in the Ravenswood Lincoln uh, Square area, and at that time. In the 1980s, uh, Chicago was still a very working-class city. Uh, so even on the north side, uh, gangs were everywhere. Gang graffiti was everywhere. So I would just, you know, I'm a little kid walking to school, uh, and uh, it's, it was just impossible to avoid this this stuff. And I found the, I found it fascinating. Uh, the symbols were just just really grabbed me. Uh, they just had this kind of uh, power to them. You know, these, these weird pitchforks and uh, crosses and uh, canes and crowns and um so uh even um you know and this was a time when like neighborhoods were very different uh people knew their neighbors and talked to their neighbors and uh, every corner kind of had a little club you know probably even up until the the 70s i would say uh you know across the street uh there was a club called the basement boys uh that uh, that was like our local gang and so I'd go down in the basement and I'd see this graffiti. It was like Black Sabbath and like uh, all the guys' names and the basement boys and big uh, letters. Um, then there were the Gaylords down the block. The Gaylords were everywhere at that time. Um, I ended up moving out of that neighborhood and getting into art school. But at some point, my interest in this was sort of rekindled. And it was kind of rekindled indirectly. I started became I started becoming very interested in the so, solitary confinement epidemic that is going on in this country, um, and I just started investigating that, and that kind of helped to uh, just sort of uh, revive this interest in my mind. So I started uh, delving deeper into the history, and it's just such a rich, fascinating history uh, that didn't seem to be uh, really explored that much. Um, and I thought, well, somebody, you know, there's got to be a book on this. And so the initial idea was to do a, uh, a history book of the Chicago street gang culture from the uh, greaser era of the 1950s up until the present day. Um, I started putting feelers out. I hadn't lived in Chicago for 20 years. Um, so I just started uh, reaching out to as many people as I could. And luckily, I was uh, able to uh, meet Jinx here, uh, who is probably the foremost uh, expert on uh, this stuff that there is. And so we uh, set about to uh, do this, uh, essentially what would be a history book. James suggested doing a collection of compliment cards as a promotional tool for that. I thought that was a great idea. I proposed that to uh, Adam Parfrey at Farrell House, and uh, he uh, was very interested in that. Uh, we thought that this and that was, came out right. I believe I've seen that. Did that come out? No. Um, that there is a, a collection I've seen of a collection of those. Yeah, of the compliment cards. That's called the Almighty and Insane. Um, Thank you. Very good book. Very nice guy too. Yeah, Brandon Johnson, the Almighty and Insane. Okay. Um, that's a really nice kind of coffee table mm. book of enlarged reproductions of these cards. Um, a we fitting were, gift for anyone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We were kind of going to do something along those lines. Um, Adam at Feral House really encouraged us to expand the book, and James has such a vast collection of Chicago gang memorabilia that it just sort of grew and grew, and um, it ended up taking us about five years to put this together. So it grew to encompass um, 
Jinx's uh, photographic documentation of what I call the golden age of Chicago street gang graffiti, just mm -hmm. huge murals and emblems, as they call them, that would just be all over the place. Uh, archival photos of sweaters, uh, the fraternity-style sweaters that these guys would wear, and all kinds of weird stuff. Nancy Clem chatted with Vivian Sansauer, the founder of the Palestine Heirloom Seed Library. Sansauer chatted about the Traveling Kitchen Project and how she works with farmers to promote seed conservation and crop diversity. Spontaneous Vegetation airs every other Sunday at 5. I was really, really lucky to be, uh, for two full years, immersed in the villages with farmers. And all I had to do is actually whatever I wanted to in terms of like follow my heart and follow my passion and whatever I like. Uh, in order to write stories and um, take images uh, of rural life in Palestine. That was my job, to write this small book for a fair trade company. And oh. that really kind of um, was amazing because it was my dream for many years before that to uh, work with farmers, uh, but I had sort of given up. Uh, I... I was too young when I was trying to start this farm uh, in my hometown. Um, actually, it started with another story. Like, okay. we can go way back <laughs> if you want, which is uh, the story that really started this whole journey. And uh, that was in 2005. I went as a translator to help a lawyer from England uh, get information from uh, a family in the Haitian refugee camp, a refugee camp in Bethlehem where I live. And I went there as a translator uh, because we were visiting this woman whose home was completely demolished by the Israeli military. And while we were sitting basically in their chicken coop, because their house was demolished, yeah. uh, she kept bringing out these delicious spinach pies. And I'm like, where are you getting all of this? Like, this is super delicious spinach. <laughs> and she just takes my hand, takes me to basically the ruins of her house. Uh, and she shows me this garden she, wow. she created on the, on the, on the debris and, and the ruins of her home. And I was so inspired. Her name is Im Ahmed. And so amazed that someone can experience such deep tragedy, such deep loss, and then create such beautiful life from that. And it really is the story of seeds, isn't it, that we, we have in our hands these little things that seem dead, and we put them in the ground, and they bring so much life at the end of their life as well. So I was really inspired by Im Ahmed, really, to, to see how we can, even in small spaces, produce so much food and produce so much life as well. Um, and then years passed, uh, and then I met uh, a lot of farmers who always talked about certain varieties, including this watermelon, uh, that they, were, they always talked about it, like this kind of like uh, romantic uh, experience mm. of uh, this love they had, this big giant watermelon. They were very proud. And for me, as someone who grew up uh, under military occupation and in a very uh, oppressive kind of environment, it was really inspiring to, 
to be taken back through the stories of elders to a time mm. when we were proud of who we were or we produced rather than just uh, felt like we just receive whatever aid or donation or whatever. And so uh, I think I was trying to go back. I was trying to excavate sort of that sense of self-value that lived in the seed and its story. So the watermelon was a story of great pride for so many people. Like they were so proud to say that they sent this watermelon to different places that their fathers put it uh, on trucks and these trucks went to Beirut, they went to Damascus and that from these valleys that I was sitting in talking to them, this giant delicious watermelon um, fed the world or fed the area basically. So it was a whole value chain actually, people mm -hmm. who worked the trucks, people who cultivated this watermelon. But whenever I asked about, well, where is this watermelon? They would say, oh, you're asking about the dinosaur. Nobody's growing this watermelon anymore. And there are stories of other variety right. of crops. Uh, another story I like a lot is the story of um, a, a kind of carrot. Uh, it's a purple carrot. It's a vegetable. And uh, we have a tradition of uh, coring it. It's a typical, actually, Jerusalemite dish from the area of Jerusalem. And uh, we core it and we stuff it with... Um, meat and rice and it's cooked in tamarind sauce and it's one of my favorite childhood dishes uh, and so one year I was looking for this uh, carrot in its season to try to cook what my mom usually made and I couldn't find it I went to different places asking uh -huh. oh do you have purple carrot no we don't oh no I don't no I stopped growing it oh nobody has the seed oh maybe you should go ask this guy he's I don't know remember his name now he like sells stuff in the in the big market. So I go to meet this guy, and he has a big, like, vegetable stall. And I'm like, oh, uh, do you have the purple carrot? And he's like, um, um, yes, no. I'm like, what do you mean? It's either you have it or you don't. You're pregnant or you're not. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so he uh, finally lifts a tablecloth uh, off the, his this table that he had, and there was a crate of these delicious uh, purple carrots. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You you have them. You know, they're, they're actually short and fat. They're like, they're not exactly like a typical carrot. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I said, can you give me some? He's like, no, no, I, I, um, I grew these out for somebody. It's been pre-ordered. I can't give it to you. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly I felt like I was engaging in a drug deal rather than uh, <laughs> right. shopping for some vegetables. And I realized the value of basically losing a whole tradition, a whole culinary tradition with the loss of this crop. And uh, then he gave me finally two carrots, and I took them home and I put them in the ground because I wanted to make seed because I didn't want to have to go through this uh, drug deal again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really one of the many stories that led to the whole seed library thing. Wow, that's great. <laughs> so um, your first story of the spinach reminds me of um, actually being in Port-au-Prince uh, 10 days after the earthquake and working on a toilet project. Um, and uh, 
I walked a little broader out of field because it was very violent where I was, and I thought I just need to go for a walk. And I kind of risked walking out of camp, and um, and there were um, there was a group of people planting seeds in the rubble, mm. and it blew me away. It really blew me away. So that was an emotional story for me to hear about her yeah, spinach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, and also that that idea of the second in the second story of um, these carrots that is. Um, as a bean freak myself, who's been collecting uh, rare beans for over 30 years, that's kind of a, a similar, I feel like I enter a similar kind of negotiation with um, some of the people who I meet who um, know that I understand that they hold something of wealth and it's a delicate balance of mm-hmm. like, are, do they want to do they want to share it with me or not? Um yeah. Yeah, I mean it is. It is it is uh I feel for example when I am not in my you know community mm-hmm. uh although my community is expanding quite yeah. a, a lot <laughs> these days. I was just thinking today while I was driving to see you that uh it seems like wherever I go I seem to also plant some seeds and suddenly I have a little community everywhere I go so I feel quite um blessed to to have that um but yeah i mean i i remember when i started doing this work um one of the first things that uh, the farmers i work with uh brought up is like people strangers come uh, a lot of foreigners come and Mm -hmm. ask for samples of of the seeds and um when I was also researching the history of how a lot of our seed varieties disappeared, it was like that. It was kind of an abuse of the generosity of uh, farmers who will give you anything. You know, they—that's they—they almost like designed to give you. Like, I mean, they manifest I, abundance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I, I know when I grow like beans or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm spinach. I want to give, like, I want to give people whatever I'm growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was greatly abused, whether it was in Palestine or other places. But in Palestine, you know, it was really how things sort of started, where they would, these extension agents of certain um, entities and companies would come and uh, say, oh, uh, we want a sample of your whatever wheat. Uh, all the wheat mm. you have. And so now um, certain governments have our seed varieties, uh, our indigenous seed varieties, and we've lost them. So mm. there's really a big, um, it's really a huge injustice, actually, that we no longer have access to the seeds that we and our ancestors developed over millennia. Uh, it's it's a it's a huge injustice, mm-hmm. and it's something that, sadly, when we talk a lot about seed saving and conservation, it's talked about, but not not so often, about how you know, all these seed varieties, all this biodiversity, like who's owning it now, who's controlling our biocultural history, also. <laughs> Size Minkowski. 
Hey, Jessica, you want to go grab a bite? I was thinking we could work on my autobiography, Kyle, the War Years, that I've been talking about. I would love to, Kyle, but I'm actually super tapped out. I had to send some money back to my friends in Joliet. <laughs> it's okay, Jess. I'm loaded. I got a ton of cash from the scrapyard. <laughs> How? It's always leaving those metal kegs around the place, and this guy on Halstead gives me two bucks a piece. Mm, Kyle. A piece? You, uh, you know what? Never mind. Eat the rich. Where do you want to go? I was thinking the hash over at George's is pretty good. No way, Kyle. Anywhere but there. All right, that's fine. How about the Bridgeport Diner? It's good, but I'm banned, remember? The whole right. thing with the card tricks and the furs. Ah, uh, yeah, well, uh, how about that place on 35th that replaced Remova? Uh, what you call it, uh, Maury's? Maury's? Uh, What's the matter, Jess? Well, it's just my mom works there. Hold on a sec. You're mine, Bridgeport. How come you ain't not said nothing about it yet? She and I don't really get along super well. Ah, jeez. A mother's supposed to be her daughter's best friend. That cannot be true, or eh, at least it's not true for me. What what you mean? Oh, God, Kyle. Where to begin? Oh, how about one of them audio flashbacks you like? Oh, my God, wow. It's like some of what I say gets into your head. They grow up so fast. It all began when I was a child. People were always saying that my mother and I looked alike, but whereas I have perfect, impeccable diction, my mom... Well, are you going to take all day in there? And as I grew older, it grew worse. I excelled in debate, choir, even ventriloquism. My mom couldn't handle it. Every time I opened my mouth in public, there she was. You know, I was considered for a part with the Supremes, but I was just too real for that scene. No, you weren't. Stop hogging my flashback. You don't know anything. You're just a kid. I, and it's true. I was just a kid. Until my mother stole my uh, boyfriend. Then apparently I was an accessory. An accessory? Like a purse or something? Sure. The point is, I don't want to see Diane. She stays on her side of Bridgeport. I stay on my side and a little bit of West Undertown because there's some really nice views there. Hold on a second. What did you say her name was? Diane. My, my mom's name is Diane. I used to know a Diane. Real well, in fact. Oh, yeah? You better cue up the flashback noise. So it was 1986. Gung Ho took its place in cinematic legend alongside Police Academy Tree. Everybody was Wang Chunging. I wore more complicated jeans. I was working as a wall washer at the erotic warehouse. I was young, dumb, and full of... Come on, Kyle. What? I was full of ambition. I was looking to work my way up from wall washer to videotape rewinder. Anywho, before I was so rudely interrupted... <clears throat> I was in Grant Park surveying the lunchtime garbage as I want to do when along walked the most beautiful creature that I have ever laid eyes on. And walking that Airedale was a set of legs topped with curly black hair and a catchy grin. You looking for a meal, sailor? Yeah, you knows it, honey. You want half this pizza crust? I was thinking maybe something a little classier. And that's how we ended up at Bennigan's. Kyle, can we skip the romantic montage and get to the point? Nah, it wasn't that romantic. But it was really dirty. Ugh, gross. That summer was the most magical I can recall. 
I ate people food almost every night. The boss gave me a biggest squeegee, and Diane and I would sit out late and just watch the stars. Oh, what happened? I don't know, Jess. One day, Diane left me a note saying that she had to go take care of something and wouldn't be back for several months, and I, that was the last I ever seen of her. Well, that's pretty depressing for a variety of reasons. Listen, if you want to go to Maury's, we can go. I guess it's okay. Thanks. Yeah, being sad makes me hungry. Adam Eve on a raft, Rackham, in 51, and sweep the floor. Hi, Mom. Jessica, what, you living around here? <sighs> Mom, you know I do. You were screaming bloody murder at my apartment last night for 45 minutes. I was. Does that idiot Terry live with you? No, Mom. Anyways, this is Kyle. This is the guy that I've been working with for the radio. Well, you know, I always said you had a face for radio. Diane? Wait. Kyle? Wait, you know this Diane? Oh yeah, real well. Just please, no. Kyle and I used to hang right around when you were born, actually. Come to think of it, you two do look an awful lot alike. We We do do not. I'm much prettier. Wait, 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 wait. Mom, you knew Kyle in 1986. Listen, babe, I gotta go to the crapper. I think Lenny's passed out in there again. We'll catch up later. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump flails against his branding as a racist. Trump's allies say he's melting down. Trump tries to stop illegal immigration. Trump circulates anti-Clinton conspiracy theories in the wake of the death of Jeffrey Epstein. And Trump tries to end the Endangered Species Act. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 932, August 9th. Trump refused urgent requests by the Department of Homeland Security to make combating domestic terror a greater priority. FBI Director Christopher Wray has testified that there have been as many domestic terror arrests in the last nine months, about 100, as there have been arrests connected to international terror. Wray also noted that most of the domestic terrorism cases are motivated by white supremacist violence. Despite this, Trump refused to shift resources and claims that radical Islamists are the nation's gravest threat. Andrew McCabe, the former FBI deputy director who was fired the day before he was to retire, sued the FBI, alleging his dismissal was retaliatory. McCabe named Trump in the suit, saying Trump purposefully and intentionally pushed the Justice Department to demote and terminate him as part of an unconstitutional plan to discredit and remove Justice Department and FBI employees who were deemed to be his partisan opponents. The Bank of America, Citigroup, and many other banks turned over documents related to Russians who may have had dealings with Trump, his family, or the Trump Organization. Separately, Deutsche Bank has turned over emails, loan agreements, and other documents related to the Trump Organization to the Office of the New York Attorney General. And Mitch McConnell promised that expanding background checks for all gun purchasers would be front and center in the coming Senate debate on how to respond to gun violence. McConnell had previously said he would not bring any gun control legislation to the floor without widespread Republican support. The NRA subsequently warned both McConnell and Trump against endorsing extensive background checks for all gun sales. Day 933, August 10th. The House of Representatives officially opened an impeachment inquiry into Trump. The House's Judiciary Committee will now decide by the end of the year whether to refer full articles of impeachment to the House floor. Committee Chair Jerry Nadler clarified in a court filing seeking to obtain the full unredacted Mueller report that the committee required those files because they are conducting formal impeachment proceedings. 
The Trumps posed for a photo with an orphaned two-month-old whose parents were shot dead in El Paso, Texas by a white supremacist gunman. Melania Trump smiled broadly and held the baby while Trump flashed a thumbs up and grinned. The photo was widely criticized as callous and insensitive. Also, the El Paso shooter that killed 22 people told police his target was Mexicans and confessed when he was arrested. Authorities believe Patrick Crucius was the author of a manifesto posted online shortly before the attack saying he wanted to stop the Hispanic invasion of Texas. A meta-analysis of that text showed the document parroted language used by both Trump and Fox News. For example, Fox News anchors had called asylum seekers invaders nearly 300 times in the months leading up to the shooting. A new United Nations report says that climate change is impacting humanity's ability to feed itself. The report warns that the world's land and water resources are being exploited at unprecedented rates and that the cycle is accelerating. The report offered several proposals for addressing food supplies, including reducing red meat consumption and adopting plant-based diets. Trump has called climate change, of course, a hoax. Day 934, August 11th. Trump walked back to statement that he was strongly considering commuting the 14-year sentence of disgraced ex-Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. Blagojevich was convicted of essentially trying to sell Obama's vacant Senate seat for personal gain. Trump's attempt to commute his sentence met strong pushback from conservatives and Illinois Republicans. Attorney General William Barr and several members of Congress called for an investigation following the suicide of billionaire pedophile Jeffrey Epstein, who faced federal sex trafficking charges before his death this weekend. Barr said Epstein's death while in federal custody raises serious questions that must be answered. Epstein had been briefly placed on suicide watch leading up to his death, but was taken off six days later. Epstein had reportedly been alone in his cell and was not monitored by guards who were supposed to check on him every 30 minutes. In his only public response to Epstein's death, Trump retweeted baseless conspiracy theories and a news alert citing Bill Clinton's previous involvement. Trump first retweeted a post from Breaking News Live, quote, documents were unsealed yesterday revealing that top Democrats, including Bill Clinton, took private trips to Jeffrey Epstein's pedophilia island. Trump then retweeted a conspiracy theory from a comedian around Epstein's death that used some of the day's top trending hashtags such as Clinton body count. Ignore was the fact that Trump made at least one trip from Palm Beach to Newark and Epstein's plane. Epstein also used to be a regular at Trump's Mar-a-Lago, but was later banned after allegedly sexually assaulting a worker there. Trump ordered ICE officials to conduct more workplace enforcement operations this year. ICE field offices across the country are told to identify at least two locations in their respective region as potential targets. This despite major outrage over scenes in Mississippi where a raid left children without their parents after an agricultural raid. And Trump issued an executive order that would give the FCC oversight over tech companies and how they monitor and manage their social networks. The rule entitled Protecting Americans from Online Censorship tasked the FCC with developing new regulations to clarify how and when the law protects social networks when they remove or suppress content. Trump has frequently claimed without evidence that social media networks discriminate against conservative voices. Day 935, August 12th. Trump is attempting to stifle legal immigration by denying visas and green cards to any migrants who use any sort of American public assistance. That would range from food aid and public housing and include subsidized school lunch programs. Those applications would be rejected if the government decides they are likely to rely on public assistance in the future. Trump moved to significantly weaken the Bedrock Endangered Species Act. That act is credited with rescuing the bald eagle, the grizzly bear, and the American alligator from extinction. The changes would make it harder to consider the effects of climate change on wildlife, shrink critical habitats, and for the first time would allow economic assessments to be conducted. It would also likely allow mining and oil exploration in key habitats. 
U.S. intelligence officials believe Russia has tested a new type of nuclear-propelled cruise missile following an explosion that killed at least seven people, including scientists, and released radiation off the coast of northern Russia. Russian officials said a small nuclear reactor had exploded during an experiment. The accident, which released as much fissionable material as during Chernobyl, seems to be related to a new nuclear-powered cruise missile that could evade existing defenses. Day 936, August 13th. Former White House Press Secretary Anthony Scaramucci said that Trump is melting down and will turn on everyone in a surprise break with his former employer. He's off the rails, and the honest people in the room know that he's crazy. Scaramucci said the past weeks and two mass shootings convinced him that Trump is incapable of governing. Said Scaramucci, we are now in the early episodes of Chernobyl where the reactor is melting down and the apparatchiks are trying to figure out whether to cover it up or start the cleanup process. A couple more weeks like this and country over party is going to require the Republicans to replace the top of the ticket in 2020. The Director of Citizenship and Immigration Services said that only immigrants who can, quote, stand on their own two feet are welcome in the U.S. Ken Cuccinelli was asked if the words of the poem displayed on the Statue of Liberty's pedestal still remain part of the American ethos. Cuccinelli replied, they certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and will not become a public charge. Trump's tax cuts and tariffs have been ineffective at drawing factory investment and jobs from abroad. Trump's trade policies have instead pushed factory activity to low-cost Asian countries like Vietnam. Trump also tried to take credit for the construction of Shell's new petrochemical complex in western Pennsylvania. Trump told a crowd of thousands of workers, quote, this never would have happened without me. Shell, however, announced the plans to build the complex in 2012 when Barack Obama was in office. Day 937, August 14th. Trump narrowed the list of Chinese products he plans to impose new tariffs on as of September 1st, delaying levies on cell phones, laptops, toys, and other goods in an attempt to spare American shoppers from higher prices during the back-to-school and holiday seasons. Stocks soared on the news. Trump's climb-down seems to have averted an escalation of what was growing into a damaging trade war. The two nations remain intractably far apart on the conflict. A coalition of 22 states and seven cities sued to block the Trump administration from easing restrictions on coal-burning power plants. The suit argues the EPA has no basis for weakening the clean power plan that set national limits on carbon dioxide. The lawsuit argues the affordable clean energy rule ignores the EPA's responsibility to set limits on greenhouse gases and that the new rule would extend the life of dirty and aging coal burning plants, increasing pollution instead of curbing it. Trump told Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu he should block Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib from entering Israel because the two congresswomen support a boycott of Israel over the country's occupation of Palestine. Israel passed a law that requires the interior minister to block foreign nationals from entering Israel if they have supported boycotting the Jewish state. The U.S. fiscal deficit has already exceeded last year's total. The deficit grew to $866 billion in the first 10 months of the fiscal year, up 27% from the same period a year earlier. 120 House Democrats and one independent now publicly support launching impeachment proceedings against Trump. A majority of House Democrats now support an impeachment inquiry. Speaker Nancy Pelosi is now in the minority of her own caucus. Trump is averaging 13 falls for misleading claims a day. 72% of Americans say there should be a path to legal status for undocumented immigrants. Only a quarter of respondents said there should be a national law enforcement effort to deport all undocumented immigrants. These are the Trump Diaries. The Klonskis chatted with Jackie Flores about the crisis in Puerto Rico. What is happening on the ground in the wake of the stillborn reconstruction efforts? How has the island political crisis affected its residents? 
Find out on Hitting Left every Friday at 11 a.m. Well, people are still protesting. <laughs> people are still really angry. Um, so uh, the governor of Puerto Rico was ousted. Um, he appointed uh, Pedro Pierluisi, um, who was resident commissioner, was secretary of justice at some point in the Fortunio. Um, and the and he got caught up in a corruption scandal of his own. Right? So he, so the thing with him is that he is one of the advisors of the Financial Control Board. He was also a lobbyist for a coal uh, company that has been poisoning our our archipelago for a very long time. So, um, so he is in with the vulture funds and. Uh, they they were going to actually appoint a governor that was going to be governing for them. Like if we already were not doing that, but this is like even more outrageous. Um, so it was challenged. It was deemed unconstitutional. So he only governed for two days. <laughs> there was crazy awesome. Two days too many. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> about his his very short governance. Um, and now uh, the woman that was the Secretary of Justice, her name is Wanda Vasquez, she was sworn in. Um, she also has her own um, set of skeletons in the closet and uh, she has, there's, there's a lot of issues with her and the first one is that she refused to investigate the governor and Fortaleza, um, the governor's office. Um, after there was a scandal with wagons, with supplies that were never taken to the Puerto Rican people after Hurricane Maria. Um, and there is a trail that where she was saying, I don't want to in, uh, have to investigate you, so deal with this, right? Like this is done. You have a sense that, there's a, that, there's a, that the movement itself, the street movement, has an alternative choice? Are they, are they backing somebody else? So something really interesting that is happening in Puerto Rico right now, no. There is not one person that is being backed, but something that is happening in Puerto Rico is that people are holding uh, community assemblies in different um, points of the island. There, ha there has been at least eight or nine right now where people are coming together to think together about what the demands are and what is it that we need um, in order to move forward. But because people are really unhappy with with who's in in the seat right now. Well, I mean, Puerto Ricans are the children of colonization, right? And colonization is a very violent process. So Puerto Ricans are uh, the descendant of Tainos, which were the original inhabitants of uh, the archipelago, um, African slaves, and all of the Europeans that came and raped um, these populations, yeah. right? So, it, so yes, we are the fruit of colonization the in of all of its... <laughs> Ben Lamar Gay and Angel Bat Dawid rolled into Studio A for a John Daly session featuring visiting Brazilian musicians. This selection was engineered by Ari Shellis.
Bachmanle, dá-te as pulos aí, saci. Alcança o espaço por nós, zumbi. Joga a cabaça, João, no mar que já virou. Na favela, a tribo passa fome de cachorro. É um osso duro de ruê, mas toda a resistência. Corre em teu socorro. Corre em teu socorro, corre em teu socorro. João, como um João qualquer, João, de sangue afrutupi, de príncipe. Ascava preto forro de operário, a novamente era do morro, aprendeu a resistir na favela, a tribo passa fome de cachorro. É um osso duro de ruer, mas toda resistência corre em teu socorro. Corre em teu socorro. Corre em teu socorro. Thank you. 
Bubbly Creek is a little bend in the Chicago River where uh, back in the meatpacking era of Chicago, there was a great deal of meat buried down there. And uh, to this day, it rots and um, fertilizes the Chicago River with a plentiful bounty of nitrates and methane. Mm -hmm. Um, And despite 
the scenic status of this area. The, the, it is protected. The, this world-renowned historical um, heritage site, um, UNESCO certification pending. Um, there are have been efforts to, to uh, quote-unquote, remediate it, sort of clean it up. And uh, in doing so, it turns out that they have uh, – the workers have angered a, uh, a, a being uh, that, that lives there or eats there or was birthed from those tons of rotting Or meat. all of the above. Or all of the above, easily. Um, the whole thing hasn't been seen, but it's been described as uh, serpentine and uh, with a, with a uh, large, um, boring beak. Um and I'm not. It's it's. Uh, and that's b- boring, as in able to bore into. Yes, drilling. N- not just a very average beak. Well, it has it has it has sunk apparently two of the um, uh, the boats they use to dredge, um, as well as uh, taken. Uh, believe it's seventeen workers down into sure. the water. And as it takes more, as the legend goes, as it takes more meat. Down, it grows in size as it adds that meat to its collection. Well, I suppose that's an interesting segue because there is a, a, sort of a, an, a feeling that this is related to certain East Side beliefs, traditions, legends. Can you speak to that? Well, not. I wouldn't say necessarily it relate related to these legends. Um, perhaps it, I, I, I believe. Prior to the Westsiders, as they are called, um, in the Eastside communities, uh, arriving to the Chicago area, uh, there, there, I mu- it's obviously clear that there wasn't much in the way of, say, uh, you know, you know, haunts. Uh, m- not not a lot of mis- like mysticism in the Eastside community. The mysticism that we know of in the East Side to you know regularly take place. Um, really started after we sort of pushed into their environs. Um, so you feel you feel as though the the these sort of rituals are a response in a way. I yes, I I believe that according to many you know uh, historians, um, following the the complete wiping out of the saltwater buffalo by West Chicagoans, uh, there was a quote unquote a plague upon uh, so to speak. Uh, West Side communities by in in the ways of sort of implanting this monster so close to you know Chicago Ch- Chicago's West Side. Now, in the in those stories, is there any is there any hint as to how this might be appeased, um, or at the very least, um, if not removed, appeased? Um, not not exactly. There is certainly like a a blood debt that is owed. That I believe we are far, we we have not committed enough. It, this monster has not nearly committed enough murders to have appeased. Are we doing yet? 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 The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. (laughs) 